Welcome back, everyone. This is Jeffrey M. Roach, and I am excited to be here with you as we add up health up and transform healthcare through innovative education and workforce solutions. Our healthcare system is facing global workforce crises at all levels and roles. The solution to this challenge requires an ecosystem approach bringing together healthcare, higher education, and workforce development in a manner that develops new pathways to careers, refining academic programs to ensure they meet the healthcare industry needs, and embracing certificates and certifications as a vital part of the solution. Today, we are joined by Shiv Gagliani, co-founder and chief executive officer of osmosis.org, a leading health education platform with an audience of millions of current and future clinicians, as well as their patients and family members. Shiv's primary passion is developing innovative and scalable solutions in the fields of healthcare and education. To this end, Shiv has curated the smartphone physical, which debuted at TedMed, and the patient promise, a movement to improve clinician-patient relationship through partnerships in pursuing healthy lifestyle behaviors. Shiv is also an avid writer who has actually written two educational books, Success with Science and Standing Out on the SAT and ACT. Shiv, it's so good to see you. And if you don't mind, we would appreciate if you, if you could just share a little bit more about your background, what led you to this work, what motivates you uh, to do this work, uh, obviously at such a, cr a crucial time. Um, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. Jeffrey, thanks for having me and uh, congrats on the launch of the podcast. Um, it's an honor to be here with you and we've had many, many good conversations over, over the years. Um, so yeah, as far as my background, you nailed a lot of it. I, I think the uh, uh, things I would share are, I was, um, I was born in Namibia in Africa and grew up in South Africa for five years. I'm very fortunate in that I have two parents who not only exposed me to healthcare, my mom's a physical therapist and my dad's a, a general practitioner who uh, was running a hospital in South Africa, uh, where he basically had to do a ton of different things, ranging from, you know, high-risk OB-GYN surgeries to eye surgery, just because of the staffing crisis that exists in Sub-Saharan Africa and that existed back then and still exists. And so I got really early exposure to to medicine and fell in love with it through them, uh, kind of following my parents to the clinics they worked in, the hospital they worked at, and saw. The, the real instant gratification effect they had as providers of healthcare. And then um, when we moved to Florida, when I was about six, uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida, which is actually where I am right now, uh, the hurricane is just leaving Hurricane Ian. So if you hear some background wind or rain, it's probably, uh, it's, it's just the remnants of that, um, which I apologize to the audience for. Um, the uh, real lessons I learned when I got to Cape Canaveral were how education can unlock doors. So because my parents are highly educated, uh, we were able to get, uh, you know, some of those merit-based immigration uh, uh, status here in Florida, and that opened up a whole realm of opportunities to me and my sister Anushka, who is a, is a dentist, a very successful dentist with six dental practices in Chicago. So the joke is I'm sort of the black sheep because I haven't finished a clinical degree yet. Between my parents and my sister, they can treat anybody, but I'm, I'm just the guy who, who takes meetings uh, all the time with osmosis. Um, so really healthcare and education sort of in my blood. I went to um, uh, college, uh, started uh, getting more and more involved in both. Um, and then finally, when I got to med school, actually at Johns Hopkins, that's where I realized that the interest needed to combine because the, the ways we were treating 
ways we were, sorry, teaching our current and future healthcare providers felt a bit antiquated, felt like they weren't paying attention to some of the things that uh, companies like Facebook and Netflix had done with personalized entertainment. Uh, I thought we could do a better job with personalized learning and more engaging content. And that's sort of the seeds that ultimately we planted almost a decade ago that have blossomed into osmosis. So, yeah, you know, obviously an interesting journey, uh, you know, coming into, into developing osmosis and, um, you know, one of the things that I want to unpack is obviously in the work that you do with osmosis, right from the start, uh, you didn't just focus on medical schools, but you also focused on nursing. Uh, can you talk to us about what, what led you to that? Because as we know in society, oftentimes it's kind of one or, or the other. Uh, you went head on into both, uh, which we applaud you because uh, healthcare is interdisciplinary. But can you talk about that? And also, you know, as time goes on, I'm sure, uh, you know, you're going to go into either other areas and you have even, you know, gone into other areas. How important is that from the osmosis view to look at the interdisciplinary nature of healthcare? Yeah, well, so so it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, very early on, the types of learning science we were putting into the Osmosis platform, and then once the Khan Academy Medicine team joined us a couple of years into it and started producing these great videos that, that we're really well known for, um, you know, we were spread thin. Like we were, you know, the vision was to help more than just medical students at Hopkins. It was to, uh, to open it up both globally as well as by field, nursing obviously being a big one. Um, and, and really close to my heart is patience and going directly to patient literacy and education. So that was always the interest. I will say we made some mistakes in the early years of osmosis where we went too broad too quickly. We even had high school type osmosis stuff. And one of the lessons I've learned, I've shared this with many entrepreneurs, uh, is that you've got to kind of have to get critical mass in one field or one one market, right? It's the whole theory of a thousand true fans that Paul Graham has espoused, where it's much better to have a thousand people who love what you do, love your products, love your content, than it is to have a million who kind of like what you do. Um, because once you have the thousand, that's a critical mass of you know, dedicated learners, testimonials you get, and obviously if they're paying or the institutions are paying, that's actually a revenue model that's sustainable from which you can then recycle those resources into developing better products and content for these other markets. So we made that mistake of being a bit too diffuse early on and then built this critical mass within medicine, which then helped us kind of keep growing. And then now that we've had much more, uh, we have many more resources, we're part of Elsevier now, clearly a lot more resources. Uh, we can more fully dedicate ourselves and and build content. Uh, as we're recording this, uh, several of our teammates are in Vegas at the National League of Nursing Conference, uh, presenting there, exhibiting there. We, you know, ten years ago would not have had the resources to do that, but now we clearly do, and you know, have a, have a, have a nice uh, platform from which to build. I will say that the core of osmosis, really, the vision is everyone who cares for someone will learn about osmosis, and we did that intentionally broad. I sort of modeled it after Nike. Nike's vision is to provide inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And there's an asterisk over athlete where they say, if you have a body, you're an athlete. So really seven and a half, eight billion people in the world could be Nike customers because they all have bodies. They all could be athletes. I love how aspirational that was. For us, you know, the goal is to get educate a billion people by 2025. And clearly there aren't a billion medical nursing PA students and health professionals. There won't be a billion of them. Um, but I think ultimately everyone who has a body cares for someone, right? So, so much of what I get pride out of osmosis is when I look at the videos we've done, the courses, the comments we get, it's, you know, a parent who wants to make sure, who wants to understand why they need to get their child vaccinated, or it's someone um, just 
the other week, someone commented on our video on stroke and said because of our because they had previously seen our video on stroke, they noticed the symptoms in their father and were able to move quickly and get their father treatment uh, through the fast protocol, and he's doing fine um, after having a having a stroke. So that type of stuff, where uh, you know we're going to talk about the healthcare workforce shortage, is so close to my heart because one comp one component is what we say raise the line. And let's train more healthcare workers and keep them employed longer and become, you know, get them more productive through more efficient education, lower student debt, all these things I'm sure we'll we'll talk about. But then the other half is that flatten the curve part, which I know we're tired of hearing about because of the COVID days. But flatten the curve doesn't just mean let's not overwhelm the health system because of COVID. It also means let's not overwhelm the health system because of diabetes, because of obesity, because of hypertension, and all these other preventable lifestyle issues where I've always said we won't, we will never have enough endocrinologists for the number of people who have diabetes. But if we can get to students earlier, get to young children, get to even older people who may develop diabetes and help them with behavior change, change help them with education, help them take care of themselves and their family members, we'll flatten the curve on diabetes and we won't need that many healthcare workers relative to the way things are progressing right now. Powerful, and obviously you shared an important mission moment that that speaks to you know why you started Osmosis uh, from the beginning, and obviously why why your team uh, continues to do the work that you do because you know literally through through Osmosis you're also saving lives, and so it's it's an important note to to highlight. But there is an element in there that I want to dig into before we also talk about workforce because it relates to workforce, which is really this idea that you know many would suggest um, that even before the pandemic. Uh, this this very issue of flatten the curve uh, around you know significant chronic care issues uh, in our healthcare society, uh, significant uh, behavioral health uh, conditions with very little access to care, frankly, um, and then even when we get into you know other areas of healthcare, we can get into health disparities. You name it. So much of what our healthcare teams are seeing also comes down to patients that have waited far too long. Uh, to come and actually access care in a preventative way, uh, which then actually further exacerbates and contributes to the healthcare workforce issue, um, because then we're dealing with much more chronic issues uh, at a time when when it would have been far better if they would have been dealt with in a preventative. What what have you seen in your time, you know, at Osmosis in the work that you do that that you know correlates to that? Um, whether it's been the flatten the curve initiative, um, but also on the education side that 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 you think helps or, or gives you some hope. That hopefully we can make you know a difference here with that. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for that's a really great question. I think, I think fundamentally at the most basic level, it's awareness, right? There's a lot of people who just lack awareness of you know they don't even know what a vaccine is, or they don't know you know about uh, why they need to eat more protein and lower carb or lower fat in general if they want to have a body you know a body recomposition. They don't know why you know blood sugar in diabetes oh it's just elevated blood sugar, but they don't know that over courses of years or decades that elevated blood sugar can lead to blindness uh, and can lead to uh, peripheral neuropathy. So there's just a lack of awareness and then education too, which I think is the foundation for changing behavior. It's so so much of this is like you know, people will change behaviors based on what they know and the people around them. And that's why a lot of what we've done on our podcast is highlight habit changing and behavior change type leaders. Uh, one of my favorites is BJ Fogg. We had him on the podcast. He's a Stanford behavioral scientist, has a great behavior change model. And um, we've done a lot to elevate that type of content. And it's also integrated in osmosis where we wanted to change people's behavior and make them lifelong learners instead of uh, acute crammers. Um, like all of us in, in med school were, we wanted to help 
change our own behavior and say, oh, why do we keep cramming and forgetting, uh, cramming for these tests and forgetting everything? How do we make sure we're doing test enhanced learning and space repetition and uh, memory palaces? How are we integrating that? And so we wanted to make it much easier using the FOG behavior model. And so the more we dug into that, the more it was clear that changing be people's behaviors through those kind of behavior models, atomic habits being another good one, could really help um, flatten the curve as we talk about. And I think we've reached the moment too where it's much easier to reach people, right? So part of what I love about Osmosis is because we YouTube was one of our main channels. We have 2.6 million subscribers on YouTube. And because we have such a global audience that that takes it upon themselves to translate our content. And now being part of Elsevier, they're translating our content into Spanish and other, other fields. That access to at least education and awareness uh, has become much easier. So we have, you know, two students from Hopkins who were part of 120 med school class. That was the pilot project have now reached 2.6 million subscribers. That's 18,000 lecture halls. No other time in history could you as quickly have done that. And there's definitely a ton of other examples of people, fewer people who've reached far more people through technology and content. So I think we're living in a great moment where this education and awareness can be helpful. Obviously the flip side of that is there's a lot of misinformation that we found from COVID. There was misinformation before COVID, but COVID's kind of brought it to the forefront that we just have to have, to have you know, do a better job. And that's why we're proud to partner with orgs like YouTube and the CDC to try elevating that, that correct, reliable, authoritative information. So that's one thing. But then we're also at this moment that, that you very well know about where the systems are changing because of things like telehealth, digital health, healthcare at home, and, um, and this shift from fee-for-service to value-based medicine, which has been happening for years, but I think COVID's really catalyzed it. And as long as we keep doing that and aligning incentives in the right way, uh, where healthcare providers, you know, if you're a gastroenterologist, you get paid more for doing colonoscopies. That's just obvious. But if you're a health system, you want to do more preventative, you know, colonoscopies are good, but you don't want to over, over test, which is low value medicine, or you don't want to, um, you know, have someone miss their appointment because they didn't do the colonoscopy prep the right way, which is an awareness and education thing and a follow through. But uh, it leads to a lot of loss, uh, readmissions for people with congestive heart failure. There's so many examples of waste and loss in the health system that through education and awareness, I think we could do a better job of reducing. I appreciate you sharing that. And, it, and it's an important point. And obviously, it, it's interesting because when you mentioned uh, BJ Fogg, um, you know, a colleague of mine, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, actually came over from Australia to train under under BJ Fogg around behavior change, uh, particularly as it relates to, you know, addressing clinician burnout. And so, um, you know, I'm curious, you know, in your work at Osmosis, because you're, you know, you're working, you know, you're, you're supporting an entire healthcare workforce uh, when it comes to education. Um, you know, just today I saw an article and was reading it that um, the physician burnout issue, uh, you know, which, which, as we know, has been very real for a very long time, just like the nursing burnout issue, is only getting worse, just like the nursing burnout issue. And I'm curious, uh, with what you know, obviously, about the work that BJ has done, but also with the work you and your team have done, what, what do you think we can tangibly do to actually address these issues that are systemic? They're not just caused by the pandemic. I know some people, even in healthcare, want to suggest that. They're actually caused in many ways by culture. They're caused by our models of care and a whole host of other things. But what have you noticed among your learners that you think, you know, helps us understand some solutions? Yeah. And, and um, so there are a lot of very dedicated and smart people working on this. I just had um, the dean uh, of the new dean of uh, a new school called University of Texas Tyler School of Medicine. 
His name is Dr. Brigham Willis. He just came on the on the podcast and had some really interesting thoughts about about that. Um, uh, you know, including you know all their health, all their incoming students are being trained to be immediately value add to the profession. They're getting trained to be EMTs and health coaches, and there's a huge focus on nutrition and lifestyle. So some of this is obviously like how do you select for students who ultimately become professionals who are so dedicated to the profession so have so much grit uh kdk who's the dean of west coast university school of nursing was talking about this too how do you select for students with tons of grit and and then also inculcate in them the good habits that ultimately not only are good better for them but also for their patients because you know clinicians who lead by example are not only healthier but they also um provide more credible credible examples to patients there's a lot of research about this to do those behavior changes so some of this is the actual selection and training process but the vast majority of it is systemic it's the moral injury it's um you know uh, kind of what we expect our uh people our residents to do there's a lot of residency strikes all over the co country and, and and in the globe really because you know we expect them to stay up for 26 hours uh and provide good patient care to reduce the number of handoffs, which makes a lot of sense because the more team handoffs there are, the more times there are errors too. So that's a systemic issue where they're working 26 hours, and certainly we don't even let our pilots fly planes at you know past 12 hours. So it's a very complex and thorny issue, but I, I'm enthused by what I'm seeing with organizations like One Medical, uh, Chen Med, Iora Health, which is a big part of One Medical, um, uh, uh, and there's a few other city block health, new innovative types of systems where they're they're finding ways to not burn out their clinicians because of how they treat them, the culture, the way they compensate them. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to reduce the burden and liability by incre by increasing the amount of responsibility across the care team. So helping with case managers, helping with scribes, help, you know, um, there are all these physician or clinician extenders that could be leveraged and scope of practice changes, including the scope of practice, which is the patient's scope. It's important for the patient to take responsibility. It's not the doc again, it's not the endocrinologist's responsibility all the time that their diabetic patients don't follow the, the guidelines. Ultimately, it's the patient responsibility. And I think there's a culture of change that has to happen. We saw during COVID, where it isn't just up to the clinicians not to burn out, to keep being heroic and providing patient care. It's also up to the to the, the general public to wear their masks back in the day, to um, get vaccinated, to not be a burden on the healthcare system. And I think that's that's more that's a bigger thornier issue where as a country, I think we really celebrate individual freedom, which I love. I mean, I'm an immigrant, I love this country, but we also, a lot of people in this country want individual freedom without personal responsibility. And I think you can't have one without the other. So if you want to be free and be able to eat whatever you want, whenever you want it and not be vaccinated and, you know, get polio and things like that, that's personal responsibility. Then you, you can't build a health system that will function that well in terms of providing you the best care at the best time and extend your life in ways that you are hoping without, again, being personally responsible for your own health, which is why I think education awareness starting day one of kindergarten makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's an important element that has to be understood too, because obviously within society, most people, you know, I would say a large majority of Americans also don't completely understand the issue of health equity. Um, and they don't understand that, you know, if they're not disproportionately impacted uh, by certain health outcomes, uh, you know, they can live their life the way they, they may wish, 
um, but ultimately their decisions also impact others who may be disproportionate. And, you know, I mean, love thy neighbor really does mean love thy neighbor, you know, think about how your actions impact others. And so it's, it's an interesting element. And, you know, it, it, it's such an interesting topic because one of the things I talk with with my nursing students and, and other students who work in healthcare all the time as a professor is is the idea that you know during COVID there was a time where we went where we all called healthcare workers heroes and then and then it was a time where it was like oh no no now you're now you're kind of like the villains uh, you know because you're you're making us do this and uh, what's unfortunate about that is that the impact of of those very actions by by frankly the by the minority has actually had pretty uh, profound lasting impact on our healthcare workforce and um, in, in not a good way. And so, you know, we've, we've got a lot of work to do as a society, which is why the whole society has to be mindful of what we all do to help a healthcare workforce, because ultimately it's, it's who takes care of all of us. So, you know, I'm curious to, you know, from your vantage point, because you alluded to this earlier and when osmosis first started, uh, you know, you were doing some some work even uh, earlier. You know, sort of in that K through 12 uh, space uh, as well. There are many that suggest we've got to also get the youth to better understand the career opportunities and and trajectory that you can have in healthcare, both clinically and non-clinically. Um, what are your thoughts on what we need to do? Because right now we don't have enough supply uh, to meet the demands that we're seeing every day. I mean, you know, recently the Forbes article uh, that was published, you know, suggested that you know, somewhere between four to 500,000 uh, nurses that will be less uh, in 2025. Um, the same article suggested right around the same number will have less medical assistance, uh, which means more nurses are going to be operating uh, below their license like they are today. Um, and we're not going to have enough support uh, for all care team members because of those, uh, those scenarios. And so what are your thoughts on what we need to do to be mindful of that um, as well? Because we've got to solve it pretty quickly. Yeah, it's really, really good question. I mean, think so um, pathway programs are really helpful where, you know, there's these schools that medical universities, health systems reach out to earlier on and that National Association of Community Healthcare Centers is another good example. They've partnered with AT Still University, which is one of our great partners, people like Ted Wendell and Craig Phelps, there have done a tremendous job of doing these pathway programs where you can find not only a more diverse group of people, socioeconomically, racially, um, uh, and in other, other factors, from those communities, rural communities often where people will either not be exposed to clinicians because there aren't, it's like a doom loop, there aren't an, enough clinicians in those communities to then be the mentors and role models for those students to then decide to do it. The students who do decide to go into healthcare careers wind up going to urban centers where there are more universities and more options and then wind up laying down roots there because there's more GME uh, residency spots, there's more job opportunities, especially as more of these rural health systems close down. So I think we have to do a much better job of, of building infrastructure in these communities with pathway programs. Um, and again, that, this is top of mind because I just had Dr. Brigham Willows on the podcast who's doing that in East Texas at Tyler with uh, community engagement, community embeddedness is what he and the team call it. Um, I think that's essential for a lot of what we want to do. And then um, finding ways to engage these people. So pathway programs are one, but finding ways to make them productive earlier on. So um, for example, like Teach for America, but Healthcare for America, right? Where students who are motivated right out of high school, right out of college can spend a gap year or a year where they're paid and they're able to, you know, save up for, save up some money, whatever it is they want to do. while 
being phlebotomists, while being scribes, while being, um, you know, just basically uh, there's a great company. I'm friends with the founder, Andrew Parker. It's called Papa. And they pay college students to go uh, do tasks for elderly people who are lonely or just go to spend time with them. And that's a great kind of arbitrage where someone wants to make some money and maybe interested in a career in healthcare and in college, they want textbook money or food money or just entertainment money. And it, they find a way to spend time and, and take care of the elderly people so that they can stay at their homes and not have to, you know, go to healthcare uh, nursing homes where their outcomes aren't as good. So if we can keep finding innovative pathway programs and innovative ways to arbitrage what our youth want with what our healthcare system needs, I think those are some uh, bright spots. And I think uh, an otherwise very, very dark and gloomy uh, kind of macro trend where people are aging really quickly. We don't have enough people who are young who are doing this. People are like, oh, I could be paid $20 an hour flipping burgers at Walmart, or sorry, at, at McDonald's, or I could be a CNA making $15 an hour changing bedpans. Like the choice is pretty obvious for anybody who isn't, you know, wanting a long time, long, long term career in healthcare. So we have to figure out ways to right size kind of our economic models around providing care um, and, and doing things. Again, I'm very enthused by the shift to healthcare at home because I think that's the only way we're going to be able to do it. You're right. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting element because, you know, obviously this is where also higher education has, has an enormous opportunity and, and actually, you know, I would call it a profound responsibility to also transform their own model um, and think where they can be of more support in this way. And part of that, I think, is, is also, you know, it's an ecosystem element here. I mean, obviously licensure uh, credentials, you know, that's a whole different element. And we've always got to make sure that uh, everything we do in healthcare is, is up to snuff from that vantage point. But there's also an element around, you know, are there certain roles in healthcare that should still require a college degree? Uh, you know, do you have to have that, that level of, of really, you know, structure that could limit equity, uh, you know, frankly, from, from getting someone into their first role or opportunity and then helping invest in them to go back and become that future nurse. And so, you know, one of the things I have really been, uh, encouraging healthcare systems to be more mindful of, to your exact point, is if you truly want to diversify your workforce, go into communities that are diverse, identify the people who, who, who have an amazing opportunity to impact your patients and your consumers, hire them, train them, support them in getting their college degree, pay for their college degree, have them continue to grow you're going to create a lifelong learner, but you're also going to create a lifelong employee because you've invested in them. Um, and obviously, if you address the culture and you do a whole other elements of creating that sense of belonging, you could have a lot, lifelong employee who could be making that impact. And um, I think there's a lot that has to be said about those types of models, too, uh, that, that you, know, you can't just assume everyone's going to be able to go off and get that college degree uh, like we have in healthcare for far so long. Um, obviously, there's requirements for clinical areas, and I get that, but I think for, for some of the others, we should be mindful of that. Um, you know, I mean, to, to your point, there's a lot to be said about, you know, some of, their more, some of, their, uh, some of those more innovative examples of, of folks that, you know, that you've had conversations with, and, and, and to your uh, comment, too, about rural, um, you know, rural and urban and, and such is important. Um, as well. What do you think needs to change, though, within, you know, the educational system, uh, you know, the higher education, uh, you know, ecosystem that would also lead uh, to some of these more positive changes from a healthcare workforce perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, so that's a uh, very near and dear to my heart because that's where we started osmosis was a lot of our educational system is, is time-based, right? It's not competency-based. And so the example I keep giving is my co-founder, Ryan, entered med school at Hopkins with me and he had a PhD in neuroscience coming in. Um, we both had to take the six-week neuroscience course. Uh, those six weeks were something he could have taught. He could he didn't have to be a student. Um, and so the fact that we both went through this time-based educational system as opposed to a more fluid model where he could test out of that and maybe spend more time in cardiology where he's weaker or some other field or or just shave, shave six weeks off of his med school, which is time, which is money. You know, if we can if we can truly integrate a more competency-based framework, we can then attract, a, you know, we can get people through the curriculum faster who without sacrificing quality or slower, right? So instead of someone having to go, you know, I, I met this respiratory therapist who went to a Caribbean med school um, who had practiced 20 years as a respiratory therapist and then decided they want to become a pulmonologist, but they had to start day one uh, and probably went through very basic, uh, basic science. They had to go through very basic science tests even though they knew so much about actual patient care and treatments. And so this lack of, you know, competency base and lack of ability to upskill and reskill people uh, who are clearly motivated, clearly have the skill set, but it's all again, test-based, time-based. And I get that because we've just, you know, we have a limited amount of faculty. There's a shortage there, as you know, as well. And um, these schools aren't really set up like for that. We also have to um, update the incentives. So I was really excited about the income share agreements, um, but like most things, like uh, most you know updates or most innovations, there's always a pro and a con. And in this case, some of the income share agreement providers maybe a little aggressive with their practices and in in fields where the you know it just was a weird way of it's like buy now pay letter pay letter type uh, companies like Klarna and Affirm where it's just a different type of debt um, that, that wasn't regulated in the way it probably should have been. And so it's, it's left a bad taste in the mouths of a lot of people who've gone, who've seen income share agreements. Um, but I still think there's possible potential for those types of things. Um, public loan student, public student loan forgiveness programs. We just need to reduce the barriers with which people would decide to pursue these careers in healthcare and then um, not you know, if we truly believe they're heroes, not uh, make them pay, not make them, not saddle them with debt and stress that comes with all that debt if we want them to become healthcare workers for long term. And then um, what else? I think the other thing is they're so siloed. There's so many silos between pre-med to med to residency to practice. Same thing with nurse res nurse readiness that I think the better we can have healthcare systems. I love what you, your point is where the actual employer, the healthcare system itself reaches out into the community and has pathways that's just so much more aligned but they aren't set up to do that because they're a hospital they aren't set up to be a school or a you know a, a, they aren't set up for all that stuff and so we need to find better ways to um to break down those silos so that all the people graduating a certain nursing program or pa program or medical assistant program are practice ready um going into it um so it isn't like you know there's a bunch of wasted time between these transition periods like that we currently see. Such an important point. And um, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's that connectedness that makes all the difference is when you, in, when you're intentional uh, about these types of things, it makes all the, all the difference. So um, I, we always ask the same question, but, but in many ways, I think some of this you've already had an opportunity to answer, but, I, but in fairness, I want to make sure, you know, I give you the opportunity as well um, as we close out uh, the episode, which is really, 
Um, if there's, you know, anything else that you uh, or certainly at osmosis uh, would do or say that would help solve the healthcare workforce crisis, uh, particularly with innovative educational solutions, um, as well as workforce solutions, what would that be and, and how would you do it? So it's interesting, like we are, our reputation, my reputation certainly at osmosis is very relationship driven. And I, I view all these so-called uh, competitors. A lot of people ask what I think about competitors, companies like Amboss, Electorio, Online MedEd, Picmonic, what I think about all these competitors in the space. And I don't view any of them as competitors. Uh, the reason is um, it isn't like we're BP versus Exxon drilling for the same oil wells and there's a limited resource. No, we're actually all competing against Netflix and Disney and you know ESPN and all these entertainment or all these other companies, social media, Instagram, that's who we're competing against because we're trying to get more people to pursue careers in healthcare, be successful as they pursue those careers. And then, you know, I think osmosis is pretty unique and special, especially now that we're part of Elsevier in that we're a company that also deeply, deeply cares about reaching the patients and the general public earlier on. So I think to really solve the healthcare workforce shortage, it isn't just it, those systemic changes, building new schools, you know, reducing student debt. Clearly, we've talked about that stuff. I really believe in them. But I think the number one thing is getting getting more of the general public to take more responsibility of their own health with uh, with education and awareness. I, I believe so strongly in that that like that's what I'm sort of you know most excited about within now that I'm part of Elsevier uh, with osmosis. I'm dedicating a lot of my energies towards that problem because ultimately we fix the healthcare workforce shortage if we have a more literate and engaged um, uh, uh, general public base that won't won't be such a draw or burden on the healthcare system. It's such an important insight, and I appreciate you know you sharing that. Shiv, I just want to ask you, you know, where uh, where can individuals find you? Um, you know, because obviously I think there's going to be opportunities that they're going to hear here and say, I want to reach out. Where can they find you? Thanks for asking that. I, I, I welcome people reaching out. I love doing these podcasts for that reason. I'm just shiv at osmosis.org uh, or find me and add me on LinkedIn. And I truly encourage that. I think if you spent the time to listen to a podcast, not just this one, but anyone, uh, any podcast, I really encourage you taking that extra step to then reach out to the people you just spent 40 minutes of your life, uh, which is your most, most valuable resource, your time, uh, and actually just send them a note and connect. And, and that doesn't mean you have to have a meeting with them or a business idea or anything, but just take the time to connect with them and say you listen to the podcast. So hopefully I'll hear from a number of you. Jeff, thank you. And, and obviously thank you for, you know, to you and your entire team for all that you're doing at Osmosis, um, because it, you know, clearly not only are you, uh, you know, flattening the curve, um, but you're also doing incredible work around transformation and innovation in healthcare education. Um, so we thank you for your amazing work. Um, and obviously for all of our listeners, we thank you as well for, for joining us as we continue to add up health up and transform healthcare through innovative educational solutions. Uh, you can continue to check us out uh, on all the other uh, episodes. We look forward to your continued engagement, uh, feedback, and, and look forward to you joining some additional shows as well. Thanks again, and everyone have a wonderful rest of the day.